So whether you're uh, very new with this practice or whether you have been uh, doing meditation retreats for a long time, the first day is the first day for most of you. Some of you have been here a little bit longer than uh, today. But for most of you, today was really the very first day of the retreat. And it really is a time, a day, where we need to go through quite a lot of adjustment in ourselves. There's a lot of things that we need to adjust to. The retreat situation here is not like our daily life situation for most of us, unless we're, uh, I don't know, fortunate? (laughs) Fortunate to be able to live with uh, very little uh, uh, stimulation and input from the outside world. Um, So we need to adjust to the form, the form of this retreat, you know, the schedule. The schedule that we put up, which is, you know, starting at 6 o'clock in the morning and ending at 9.30, but with continuing uh, sitting and walking and sitting and walking in the form of meditation, adjusting to that, you know, finding where our capacity is, where our limits are in relationship to the schedule. We have to adjust to, in some ways, we have to adjust to mindfulness itself because the... Um, the practice of paying attention can seem like a lot of work, surprisingly, you know, because we're in some ways not used to it. We're not used to uh, being very present uh, with what's happening moment to moment. So when we recognize that we are not here, we're not present, then we apply the practice of mindfulness where we pay attention, wake up to see what is actually going on. And that can seem like, like a, a lot of work, particularly in the first day, because we see how much we're not really present, you know, how much our mind wants to go back into the past or fabricate some kind of future reality. And when we wake up from that, we kind of sometimes jolt from that uh, dream-like reality that we're off, we often find ourselves in, we realize how much of the time we're not here. And even that, that adjustment, seeing uh, that recognition of, of that absence of attention and having to bring ourselves back again and again and again, So adjusting to that, adjusting to the silence, being with a group of people and not talking to each other. And for some people, particularly people who aren't used to this form, that's a big adjustment. You know, I often had lots of people um, in the beginnings of retreats to say that that it's one of the hardest things for them is wanting the the urge, the... um, longing to make contact, you know, to um, interact in the way that we're, we're used to, particularly maybe in the dining room, you know, when we sit in such close quarters with somebody nearby, but we're not talking to the person. can feel quite, sometimes quite awkward or uh, unnatural. And so we need to adjust to that, being with, with uh, a community of people and yet still being very much 
alone with yourself. We need to adjust to sitting for long periods of time. The body has to get used to the, 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 the posture where we're sitting without moving. And the body can feel the strain of that, the pain of that, the uh, irritation of sitting. And so that also is something that we have to get used to. The, the periods of walking where, you know, we're asked to walk for 45 minutes. And that seems terribly, can seem terribly unnatural, you know, just walking back and forth and back and forth. And it's quite likely that the mind throws up all kinds of resistance to that. Boredom, uh, restlessness, um, confusion, not liking aversion, wanting something to happen as if nothing's happening. You know, that's a good one, isn't it? You know, when the mind wants something to happen. There's really the belief in that moment, there's the perception in that moment that nothing is happening. But that's so odd, isn't it? <laughs> you know, I think that um, Fritz Perl said once that boredom is just lack of attention. You're just not paying attention, because purely, yes, lots of things are happening in the moment, but for some reason we get fixated on the idea that nothing is happening and then just can feel the pain of that boredom and the, the wanting of something else, something other than justice, pacing back and forth and back and forth, or just sitting and watching the breath. Another moment, I'm going to jump out of my skin if I have to watch my breath for another moment. How can I find interest in my breath? Now, this is so boring. <laughs> this is so, so unnatural. Sometimes it can seem like that. So this kind of adjustment too, adjusting to these, this odd form that we find ourselves in. But yet, for all of us, something keeps us here, which I always find quite fascinating. <laughs> you know, particularly on the first couple of days when it is quite difficult. We have what's called the um, hindrance attack, all the things that I've just described, the uh, five classical difficult mind states, for those of you who aren't familiar with them, and also to remind you, uh, mind those who are familiar with them, the difficult mind state of the wanting, the longing, the, the, the lusting after something else, something other, something that we think is going to bring us some kind of happiness in this moment. We fabricate some kind of idea, you know, whether it's the the cup of tea or going back to our room or the meal or being with a a loved one or um, the fantasies can get quite big. You know, each of us have our, our favorite fantasy of what we you know, long for or, or crave for that's going to bring us that, that moment of contentment that we are so much wanting and not able to access in this moment. So one is the, the mind state of uh, longing or lusting after. 
The other difficult, next difficult mind state is the opposite of that, is the aversion, the not wanting, which we also experience a lot on the uh, uh, first few days of the retreat. Is we don't want what's here, <laughs> what's arising in this moment. It's the last thing we want to be feeling, want to be thinking, want to be experiencing, whatever it is, want to be eating, want to be hearing, <laughs> want to be feeling. And so we can get strong uh, states of aversion, not liking, and anger, irritation, or sometimes um, uh, 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 rage can arise in the mind. All different kinds of degrees of that aversive mind. We have the mind state of dullness, sleepiness, and tiredness. So many people talking about exhaustion. You know, I don't know what it is. You know what it is in the maybe even in the in the culture. Now this exhaustion that arises through, through the way that we're living our lives, either you know through the constant impact and stimulation and 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 the many many tasks and responsibilities and um, the inability to to process and sort out what's what's happening within ourselves. So we get we fall into states of real tiredness and sleepiness. But also on the first few days of a retreat, this arises because there's not much stimulation, you know. And when there's not much stimulation or much to do, then it's a signal to the mind that oh, it must be time to go to sleep. <laughs> there's nothing else to do. This is a great time to sleep, you know. I've been wanting to catch up on my sleep for a long time. And so it can, we can be lulled into the good feeling, the contented feeling of sleepy, sleepiness or dullness, particularly if we're not fighting it, if we're not in conflict with the tired mind. As we sink into it, it can feel very sweet, you know, something we've been longing for or wanting for a long time. So on, on the first few days of retreat, depending on our lifestyle and the, the, uh, uh, um, the impact of circumstances in our life, we're going to feel uh, waves, waves of, of tiredness or dullness that come through the day. Some, some uh, one person I know for sure just flew over from the States in the last two days. Of course that person's going to be feeling a lot of tiredness in the body, catching up, adjusting adjusting to the new climate, new time zone. That's the third difficult mind state that arises. The fourth difficult mind state, which again is the opposite of the third one, sleepiness, is the opposite, which is restlessness. Mm -hmm. Having too much energy, which also comes about, particularly when there's not much stimulation or not much to do. We have all this energy we want to put somewhere. We want to do something with it. No, we're just supposed to sit there, you know, sit still and not move. And all this energy is moving, you know, the body, all the sensations in the body, the, the um, vitality in the body, the, uh, the mind starts to move, so the energy goes up into the thought, and the thought starts to move, and we start going back into the last month, and then the last year, and the last ten years, and the mind can go all the way back to when we were a child, and then the mind will 
flip over to the future and then the far future and the mind is just moving in all these realms of time with all this energy that's moving in the body as a way as a way to express that as a way to have somewhere to put it and so sometimes it can feel so hard to sit still or to move slowly to do the walking meditation we just want to run we sometimes want to scream it feels so hard just to sit here so we have those we have the wanting the not wanting the sleepiness the restlessness and the fifth difficult mind state that often arises is the one of doubt it's particularly when we're having multiple hindrance attacks you know then we have doubt about why we're even here why i'm doing this practice and why i came to the retreat you know was this uh, was i having you know a bad dream or <laughs> what made me think that this is the place i'm supposed to be spending my holidays you know and you know deeper doubts you know doubts about myself and my ability to do this practice and is this the right practice for me and and i don't know these weren't the teachers i hoped that i was going to get you know or or whatever the way that that doubt again the doubt can latch on to different ideas different uh movements of the mind and then become big and fill the mind and then of course with the doubt can come more agitation and restlessness and wanting and dullness and sleepiness and so these these are what's called the multiple hindrance attacks so this is often what the first few days are filled with doesn't it sound wonderful <laughs> this is why i say it's amazing to me that people stay here you know because it's often uh hard to contact to stay in touch with our deeper motivation our deeper um uh, understanding for why we do the practice now if we've done the practice we've been involved with meditation for a long time we have enough evidence in our own practice that fuels our faith and our motivation and our sense of urgency for practice and that motivation and urgency then deepens our commitment and as our commitment deepens then that gives us more evidence for the practice which then deepens our faith deepens our motivation and we are in that cycle mm-hmm. and we are empowered by that cycle once we have some evidence that there's a reason to do this practice sometimes that evidence may only come from somebody outside of ourselves somebody we know some some book that we read some teaching that we've heard and there's something that resonates for us something that touches us in our heart and we say yes that's something that i want that's something that i want to know that's something i want evidence for and that can motivate us to keep us on the pillow on the cushion but soon that evidence comes we we touch something in our own heart and our own mind and our consciousness and then that that starts to awaken that sense of urgency for more for more understanding for more wisdom for more connection for more love for more openness 
So in the first few days of practice, we, we call on this memory sometimes. We call on our memory for what's happened before and what we know to be true. Because we need that, we need that, um, sometimes we need that extra push, that extra motivation to keep our attention here, to keep our mind here. But as we go through the day, and I wonder if this has happened for you because it certainly happened for me, I'm, I'm also arriving, arriving in retreat. I, haven't, I, I was in retreat about three weeks ago, uh, teaching another retreat on the West Coast in California, but in the three weeks there's a lot that, that happened, a lot of stimulation, a lot to process, a lot to sort out. And then coming back into retreat, it's also for me arriving, settling into being here in this silent, protected and precious environment. And many times through the day, that sense of connection and presence has broken through. Where I feel the contact again with that which is not my thinking mind. Mm -hmm. That which is very present, coming through the senses, the, the ears, the sound, the sound of the wind. I've been hearing the sound of the wind all day. Just that backdrop of the wind blowing. And that sound of the wind connects me with the present. It brings me right here into the nature of things. It reminds me where I am. And it brings me into the listening, the listening of this present moment, the truth of this present moment. Just hearing the sound of the wind where nothing else has to happen and knowing that that presence of the wind pulling me into the present moment is where I want to arrive at. I don't want to arrive at or in my thoughts about what has to happen in the future or some kind of understanding of the past or making sense of something, but that in the quiet, in the stillness itself, some resolution of sorts will come. But not a resolution that usually comes through trying to make sense of something through my thinking about it. Trying to sit down with myself like I used to do when I was in my 20s and not having any other resource for knowing how to make sense of things and really thinking I just needed to sit down and think. Yeah. How many times we, we think that, you know, I just have to sit down and think about things, or I have to go away and think about things. Mm -hmm. And there, in some ways, was a sense that I had to think about things. You know, somehow I had to collect my thoughts in such a way that I started to make sense of the things that were happening in my life. But I found often I would just get myself into more tangles and more confusion because it didn't really work very well. And then I was introduced to meditation in my late 20s 
And the meditation was asking me to let go of all of that, let go of the way that I was thinking about things or trying to understand things and come into the silence. Just come into the the one-pointed stillness and see what arises from there. Not that everything dissolves and everything disappears and goes away and there's no more problems anymore, (laughs) which is what we'd really like. We'd like to find the way, we'd like to find a pathway into our consciousness that would just dissolve all this. And so I could just leave it all behind and somehow find a a light contentment in that ecstasy somehow where I'm not touched, where I'm not impacted by any of the worldly conditions. Have you ever had that kind of thought? <laughs> Sometimes I wonder if I'm the only one who has thoughts like this, you know? <laughs> wanting uh, meditation in my spiritual life to be some kind of um, magic wand, you know, magic, where I would just instantly be transpor- transformed and transported to some other realm without dying. But coming into this meditation, mindfulness meditation, the opposite was being asked of me. Rather than dissolving in some kind of ecstatic union with reality, it was asking me to come into contact, into connection with the truth of this moment just as it is. In all of its forms, all of its joys, all of its sorrows, all of its pains and sufferings and, and, and ecstatic moments, joyful moments. And that's difficult. That's difficult because sometimes when we find ourselves drawn into the present moment, like hearing the sound of the wind and just having that breakthrough of thinking mind, even momentarily, we just we feel the release for that moment, the release of the burden of the past, the burden of the way that we know ourselves. We feel the release of the familiar and the known. And there's something that feels very precious in that moment. And yet those moments when we can feel the release of the burden of the past and and not picking up the burden of the future. What that does is actually give us more strength and more capacity to actually be there in the next moment. And what arises in the next moment may not necessarily be one that is just so empty but it may be one that is actually quite full and not necessarily full of joy. There may be a memory that arises that's quite painful, or there might be a physical feeling in the body that is very difficult to be with, or an emotion that arises that's completely um, 
feeling irrational, like there's no connection to any past or future. We just drop into some kind of grief or sadness or fear or anxiety that may not be connected with anything that we know in that moment. We don't know what the next moment is going to bring. But yet something informs us that this is where we need to be. This is what we, where we need to be, right where we are. And when I connect with that truth of the moment, that's what feels the most ecstatic for me. Whatever arises in that moment, it doesn't have to be ecstatic in the feeling of ecstasy. But it's a different kind of ecstatic, and it's a kind of ecstatic that can be there even when I'm feeling pain, even when I'm feeling disconnected, even when I'm feeling restless or agitated, when I'm feeling uh, doubtful. And what feels ecstatic is the fact that I'm here, that I've arrived that I'm not drawing on my usual strategies to space out, to run away, to deny, to suppress, to pretend, to pretend that what's happening isn't happening, falling into and collapsing into fear in a blind way, but that I really can be here that I really can be here for whatever is going to arise, for whatever is arising and whatever is going to arise. The sense of real uh, strength and power and vitality that arises right in that in that kind of connection. And there's another quality that is generated through that kind of presence and that kind of connection. And that is one of compassion. Because if I'm really able to be there, it's likely that I'm not falling into some kind of negativity and struggle and... uh, aversion towards what's happening. But I'm actually able to be in an attitude of mind where I can open and receive whatever is occurring. And in order for that openness to occur, there needs to be a, an attitude of care and respect, a kindness, and compassion for our predicament. a compassion for what we find ourselves in. So much of the practice, so much of what we're cultivating is this attitude of compassion, this attitude of kindness towards what is arising in the moment. Sometimes it can seem like talking about kindness and gentleness, which we talk about a lot, and we'll be... Catherine and I will give you that advice 
day after day after day. Be kind to yourself. Be kind to yourself. And it can almost seem um, sometimes so simple, almost too simplistic or, you know, not really what the practice is about. You know, it's not just about being kind. It's not just about being gentle. There's got to be more to it than that. And yet, unless the kindness is in place, we can't move in the practice. Because we keep hitting up against the difficult negative patterns of mind that keep us caught in the suffering, in the pain. And it really is only when we start to have some sense of how to cultivate the compassionate heart that we can start to act, to really transform those negative ha- habit patterns of mind. Because those patterns of mind need to be met with the love, with gentleness, with gentleness, with kindness, or we keep reinforcing those difficult patterns of mind. How else are we going to come out of them? What's going to bring about the transformation from habitual egoic states of mind? Because those states of mind themselves are, are fixed. That, that's what makes it an, uh, an, egoic, an, an egoic state, is that it's a fixed state of mind. We, and we fall into those patterns again and again and again, and we feel the pain of it, we feel the suffering of it. The greed, the hatred, the delusion. So something has to start to shake those fixed patterns, those solid patterns of mind. Something has to enter in that's going to be different than those patterns themselves. So what we cultivate, what we have to draw on, are the, are the practices which bring about compassion, which bring about gentleness. And so a very basic practice that we do again and again and again at all stages and all levels of practice is that when we recognize that there is an egoic pattern arising in the mind, and when I say egoic, I mean a negative pattern that is leading to suffering, when we recognize that there is a difficult pattern arising in the mind, there is some aspect of consciousness that sees it, that is not the pattern. There's something within our consciousness that can witness that or observe that, that is not the pattern. And we call this the self-reflective nature of mind, that aspect of mind which can actually see itself, the aspect of mind that can see the mind, consciousness itself, awareness itself, which can reflect back on what's actually occurring. So the meditation helps us awaken to consciousness, to the aspect of mind, the aware aspect of mind that we can then draw on and turn towards ourself and see what we're doing that's bringing about suffering, not only to ourselves but to those that are around us. What are we doing? So we need to see that. We need to see that, and we need to understand what it is that sees that, and that there is something that sees that. 
this is really an, a very sophisticated revelation of consciousness is to really awaken to that reality. I mean, it's going on all the time for everybody, for every human being, because all human beings are conscious. But to awaken to the fact that we can actually self-reflect and use that self-reflection for transformation is another leap again, is another step again. And then to turn that consciousness towards the way that the mind is working, the patterns of the mind, so that we can see it and understand it, and then be able to bring about skillful means and resources that are going to bring about transformation. This is really the path of the Buddha, the Buddha Dharma, the path that the Buddha laid out, the path to liberation or the path to awakened consciousness. So all the things that we practice here, all the things that we're doing, the form, the uh, methods, the techniques, the meditations, the visualizations, the uh, guided meditations, all the things we do, the compassion meditations, the loving-kindness meditations, the walking, all of those are forms that support the awakening of consciousness. So that we can wake up to the consciousness that we are and turn that towards ourselves to see what can be discovered, to see if we can discover the ways that we are creating our own suffering and how that suffering is getting perpetuated in this world because it's what's happening in every human consciousness, perpetuating suffering. And there is a way to come out of that suffering. There is a way to come out of that suffering into an awake state of being, which is who we are the consciousness, the wakefulness that we are. And so our, our wish for this retreat is that we can really draw on the resources that, that we've been given, that I've been given, that Catherine's been given, that you have been given. We really draw on these resources and we implement these resources to see what's possible in human consciousness. To really see what's possible here and now. And this isn't necessarily something that, and I'm not talking about a long path necessarily, although it may be, <laughs> and sometimes it certainly seems like it is, you know. But yet to keep in mind that what we're talking about is right here and now. The possibility for being awake. Just like when we hear the sound of the wind and nothing else needs to happen. That is an awake consciousness. That moment of stillness, when the mind fully rests, in this case in the hearing, 
just the hearing. Or it may be a moment when the consciousness rests in the seeing. And just the seeing. You know, whatever it is that we, we may be noticing, which we notice so much more when we, when we get a bit more quiet and slow down. I was just upstairs uh, for the 15 minutes before the talk doing some walking meditation in my corridor and there was a paper lamp the light on and there's these I guess you call them daddy long legs here you know that they but our daddy long legs in the states are different than the daddy long legs here your daddy long legs fly ours don't <laughs> and so there was a daddy long legs that was hanging by one leg on the lamp, just in the lip. And the rest of the legs, and it seemed like there were a lot, were just going like this. Just hanging by one leg. And I I was just looking at it, looking at it, and I thought for a moment, I thought, I wonder if he's stuck. Because it was just one leg and a lip, and I thought maybe he was trying to, to get out. And I just watched him and watched him and watched him. And I started feeling like, oh, maybe he's really stuck and really suffering. But then I didn't let my mind go there, and I just watched and watched. And then, of course, the next minute he just flew away. (laughs) So it seemed that he was, he or she or it, was (laughs) doing some kind of cleansing, you know, just cleaning his uh, legs in some way. And then just, that was one way that, that he, he, I'll just call him he for the moment, (laughs) <laughs> that he allow, allowed himself to uh, get into that posture in order, in order to do that and was just cleaning, cleaning off his legs and then flew away. I've never seen that before. I would never even stop long enough to see something like that. And it isn't only until I come into a retreat situation that I really do start to see. And I can see things without my mind interfering, or I can see when my mind does start to interfere and start fabricating a story and making some kind of interpretation based on my own conditioning and my own ideas about things. And then to let that go and then just be purely in the seeing again. There are moments like that. Or there be maybe moments when we're just feeling we're sitting and the only thing that's happening is the pure feeling of a sensation in the body and we're just noticing how that feeling changes and how it shifts and what it moves what it changes into and the different forms that it takes and consciousness is just right there without adding anything on top of it without interpreting it making it into a bigger story we're just with the feeling Maybe just with the smelling or just with the tasting. You know, tasting our food. Seems like I have to come to retreat sometimes to, to really be able to taste food. Otherwise, there may be, I may get into more of a, a rush. I have things to get done, things I have to do. And so the eating is kind of a nuisance. You know, it's some, something that gets in the way of all the other things I have to do. But coming to the retreat, there's the possibility of really being there to taste what a carrot tastes like. Isn't it, isn't it kind of a shame, really, that we've lost that in our culture? We may not even know what a carrot tastes like. You know, or, or 
or an onion or a piece of broccoli or whatever it is, a, 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 a spoonful of porridge, whatever it is. So here there's the possibility for these moments, something to break through consciousness, to break through where we're actually witnessing, we're, we're really observing, present with the, with the moment, with whatever is arising for us. And what's arising for us is going to be only six experiences, by the way, just to help simplify things. What's arising is either going to be one of the five senses or it's going to be thought. This is our entire reality as a human being. Seeing, tasting, smelling, touching, hearing, or thinking. And the knowing of that. That's all that ever happens, moment after moment after moment. So we're either going to be engaged in a very direct way with one of the five senses, or we're going to be thinking about it, which is usually what we're doing, isn't it? (laughs) Making up some kind of interpretation or story about what we're seeing, hearing, tasting, smelling, or feeling. So on retreat, there's the possibility of bringing awareness and reflection to our moment-to-moment experience without the imposition of all the things that we get engaged in in our daily life. I'd like to read um, this piece called Sweet Nothing. Um, I've read it before on retreat. It's really uh, one of my favorite pieces. It's by Amy Krauss-Rosenthal. How have you been? Busy. How's work? Busy. How is your week? Good. Busy. You name the question, busy is the answer. Yes, yes, I know, we are all terribly busy doing terribly important things. But I think more often than not, busy is simply the most acceptable knee-jerk response. Certainly there are more interesting, more original, and more accurate ways to answer the question, how are you? I'm hungry for a burrito, perhaps. I'm envious of my best friend. I'm frustrated by everything that's broken in my house. I'm itchy. Yet, busy stands alone as the easiest way of summarizing all that you do and all that you are. I am busy is the short way of saying, implying, my time is filled, my phone does not stop ringing, and you, therefore, should think well of me. Have people always been this busy? Did cavemen think they were busy too? (laughs) For instance, this week is crazy. I've got about 10 caves to check on. Can I meet you by the fire next week? I have a hunch that there is a direct correlation between the advent of coffee bars and the increase in busyness. Look at us. We're all pros now at hailing cabs, making Xeroxes, carpooling, performing surgery with a to-go cup in our hands. We're skittering about like hyperactive gerbils, high not just on caffeine, but on caffeine's luscious byproduct, productivity. Ah, the joy of doing, accomplishing, crossing off. As kids, our stock answer to most every question, what did you do at school today, or what's new, was nothing. 
In our country's history, there have been exactly seven kids who responded with a statement other than nothing. Then somewhere on the way to adulthood, we each took a 180 degree turn. We cast in on our nothing for busy. I'm starting to think that, like youth, the word nothing is wasted on the young. Maybe we should try reintroducing it into our grown-up vernacular. Nothing. I say it a few times, and I can feel myself becoming more quiet, decaffeinated, <laughs> zenish, nothing. Now I'm picturing emptiness, a white blanket, a couple of ducks gliding on a still pond. Nothing. Nothing. How did we get so far away from it? So we might say, in some ways, that we're practicing nothing. Nothing. No thing. And as we let that in, we let ourselves feel it, maybe the mind can stop for just a moment. The mind, the, the mind stopping its rushing into the three realms of time, past, present, and future. come into no thing, no thingness. And in the no thingness, then we see what's there. We see what's really there when we're not fabricating, imagining, interpreting, carrying our stories with us, but just being being no thing. These are the teachings of letting go. Buddha taught renunciation and letting go. And so we keep letting go and letting go and letting go. We let go of what just arose in the last moment and arrived. Arrived with the wind, the rain, the dark clouds today. Arrived with the night. Arrived in our body, in our feelings, arrive in our consciousness. And see what can be discovered there. Let's sit quietly for a few minutes. Thank you for listening. 
To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.